0: From the American Foreign Policy Council in Washington, DC, I'm Michael Sobolik, fellow in Indo-Pacific Studies, and you're listening to Great Power Podcast. It's an inside look into a world increasingly defined by great powers like the United States and China, and others like Russia. It's a forum where national security experts explore how these adversaries threaten the US. And it's also a hub for crafting strategies to protect the American people. This is episode nine, Wireless Wars with China. Hey guys, I wanted to take a moment and thank you for listening to the podcast. It's been a true pleasure to host And I think we've had some great conversations here. Today's episode is no exception. I think you're going to like it a lot. But before we dive in, I want to address the obvious. There's a land war waging in Europe right now. Ukraine is under continued escalated attacks from Russia, and the scope and scale of this war is unmatched in decades. We haven't seen something like this in Europe since World War II. It's unnerving to see footage on social media of explosions rocking Ukrainian cities and reports of military and civilian fatalities. We're all witnessing an ugly truth. Dictators like Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping do not subscribe to notions of liberal norms or constructs like the international community. We are living in a new Cold War one that will not be won by appeals to shared values or reputational arguments, contrary to the beliefs and hopes of many. This makes me think back to 2005 when the late great British strategist Colin Gray said as much in his book Another Bloody Century. He said, quote, The Cold War is barely 15 years gone, yet already it is orthodox among many liberals and many conservatives to claim that major war between states is obsolescent or obsolete. He continued, If history is any guide, this popular view is almost certainly fallacious, unquote. Fallacious indeed. And not just in the realm of missiles and tanks, but also in the domain of bits and bytes. We're talking about Huawei today, and more broadly, the tech competition between the United States and China. But as you listen... I'd encourage you to not think of this as a peacetime tech skirmish between Washington and Beijing. That's certainly not how the Chinese Communist Party sees it. They view the technological realm as a domain of political warfare and are seeking information sovereignty, not just within their own borders, but abroad as well. This isn't network skirmishes between geeks. This is a central front in our Cold War with China, perhaps the central front. And today's guest understands this truth better than most. John Pelson isn't a bureaucrat or political operator. He's worked in telecommunications for decades. John joined Lucent Technologies during the tech boom in the 90s, later served as the chief of convergence strategy for British Telecom, and he developed a global wireless plan for the company there. During his time with these and and several other companies, John traveled to China and saw that the country's fledgling telecommunications companies were growing and eventually seized global market dominance. John has deep personal experience in this sector and enjoyed rare access to the people who ran the world's largest telecom companies, and he decided to investigate how our tech lead was lost to China. And what we could do to take it back. The result of that investigation was his book, Wireless Wars, China's Dangerous Domination of 5G, and How We're Fighting Back. John has a degree in economics from Dartmouth College and an MBA from the Darden School at the University of Virginia. John, it is a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me here today, Michael. Sure thing. Okay, Okay, so in your book, Which is titled Wireless Wars, as we just discussed. I want to start with what you mean by that title and why you describe the situation that we're in as a wireless war. Because I think, at least for most Americans, when they pick up their phone throughout the day, they do it either to call an Uber, to order delivery from DoorDash, to hop on social media, what have you. I would venture to say, That the thought of the tech realm being a domain of warfare usually doesn't cross the mind of most folks. So, when you say wireless wars, what do you mean by that? And how is it that national security fits into technological life in the 21st century?
1: Well, I can explain that by telling you how the the title, the working title of the book changed along with my whole thesis on the book. And I'm a business executive by Background: Not a journalist or or, or a reporter, or writer, and I originally thought I was going to write a book about how China had backed a national champion Huawei to become a dominant player in a really important market, and they were going to put money in because China wanted to have someone who was uh, bringing national pride to the com- country and and you know making money for the country, helping the economy, and how one of the ways they had done that it was by compromising. Uh, countries and individuals to that end. In fact, the original working title was "Compromised," and then uh, some guy, I think named Peter Stroke, just up the street here in Washington, came out with a book uh, about a year ago by that title. But but long before that happened, it was clear that I was going another direction in the book. Uh, I started interviewing business executives, but I also started talking to counter intel officers and people with the uh, intelligence agencies. And the stories I started hearing and and verifying took me in a totally different direction. My thesis changed. This was not China backing Huawei, so Huawei would succeed. This was China backing Huawei, so China, the Chinese Communist Party, would succeed. And what became clear, especially with the numbers, I did some pretty hard, deep dive on the economics of their subsidizing of Huawei, $75 billion is the number the Wall Street Journal came up with. And the economist I spoke to said, you will never make that money back. I said, well, why are they doing it then? And what became clear is that this was in the the greatest tradition of Sun Tzu, and I know I'm violating that law as soon as the the Sun Tzu is invoked, but uh, in the tradition of Sun Tzu, they were winning without fighting. And what China realized is if they could infiltrate all the countries of the world with the telecommunications networks on which their business is done, their politics is communicated, uh, their military uh, communicates, then they will have secured a, an advantage, a geopolitical advantage over what China seems to see as adversaries, not trading partners or customers. And so this really was a war by other
0: means. So you you use the phrase geopolitical advantage for folks outside of the beltway. I think terms like that are usually responsible for eyes glazing over and stuff like that. But I will say this, I, I read your book and there's one chapter in particular where you go beyond that phrase and you say, okay, when we use a term like that, a geopolitical advantage for the Chinese Communist Party through the activities of companies like Huawei, there are real examples of this, and I think the most fascinating and slightly horrifying one that you mention is when you talk about investigations that the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, were, uh, were conducting, and they discovered when they overlaid the uh, rural telecom investments and locations of base stations for Huawei equipment uh, in. Rural parts of America, they overlaid that map with a map of domestic US military sensitive bases, whether the nuclear missile silos up in Montana, or similar bases out in Oklahoma, what have you. And and it's interesting, uh, you wrote about someone at the FBI and how they approached research or investigation that actually got them to that discovery. And uh, they've said uh, in in your book that they had this premise, which is if I were a state actor like the Chinese Communist Party, and I were to pursue geopolitical advantage through a company like Huawei, what would I do? And it's that type of thinking and that way of how you approach business that gets us into some of these crazy situations. And I think, again, to the question of why wireless war, Uh, I don't think you're going too far at all to say that China views the activity of companies like Huawei and the development of 5G technology as part of their national security pursuit. But I want to ask you, when we say 5G, what do we mean? What exactly does that mean practically? Because a lot of us will see the the words 5G in the upper right hand of whatever phone we're using when our connection is good. But I, I do think... We kind of take that term for granted. And, and you talk about in your book how the difference between 4G networks and 5G are just totally different. So uh, could you walk us through that? Sure. Uh,
1: and, and this is really important because the, the hype in my industry, there's a lot of, um, I'm not sure if the, F- the FCC doesn't have oversight for the language used on your show, but uh, I'll, I'll keep it clean anyway. It's a lot of nonsense. Thank you. Um, what, here's what you got. The first generation of wireless cellular was analog. It was. It got the job done. It was fundamentally a cellular network, but had a lot of issues. Second generation, all it did was become digital. So you could send a text message and the sound quality and, and the handling of calls was a little bit better. Third generation, you could finally start to get on the internet. You could send emails, a little more bandwidth. And fourth generation was a lot more bandwidth and you could have always on real-time video. Each generation was a little faster, a little better. Fifth generation is not the fifth of five. It's really a break. It's different. And here's how I would summarize the difference. Uh, And forget the nonsense, a thousand times faster, a hundred times faster. Uh, The engineers tell me it's about 15% faster, like for like. You can get more bandwidth the way a highway, you know, is 60 miles an hour. You say, I'm going to build a highway that's 70 miles an hour, and I'm going to put 40 lanes in that highway. Okay, so if you use more, pieces of, of the airwaves and you just kind of wrap it all up together, you can, you can go faster, but it's not really, that, that's nonsense. The interesting thing is that 5G is a new way of connecting people. You talk about the internet of things, which is this idea that every item will have a sensor, a, a receiver, a transmitter, every sprinkler head will tell your system whether it's spraying the right level of water, whether the soil is already wet enough and it can turn off you know your door locks, your self-driving cars, uh, and more interestingly, in the factories, the way machines talk to each other, there's two things that have to happen. First, it can't be wired sensors that are happening in the factories and in the ports because companies have learned you need to be more dynamic. You're going to change the layout of your shop floor. You're, you're dropping a product line and creating a new one. You've got a new process. If you've got hardwired sensors, you can't move it. So you wanna go wireless. Wi-Fi doesn't really do the job. It's not reliable, it's subject to interference. It's not that secure. So 5G allows an area that used to be able to handle 1,000 4G phone calls can now handle 100,000. So it's not gonna be a phone call, is it? It's gonna be the little camera on the medical device assembly line that's scanning ob- objects, you know, 10 per second, sending a high resolution picture to an artificial intelligence engine that's saying that one looks funny, which is then transmitting in a thousandth of a second a command to another device on that line to flick that device off the line. So it goes into the bin and then notifies the production area that there's a problem with some of the supplies that's causing this problem. That's all happening with no person ever touching it. And if you don't have low latency, high bandwidth, high security, all these different attributes that 4G doesn't really do, it, you can't deliver this transformation without it. So 5G, the revolution will begin in the factories and in the ports and in the warehouses. That's where it's starting now. People will be the last beneficiaries of it in a direct sense. You'll you'll benefit from having better products and smoother flowing highways and that kind of thing.
0: You actually mention, again, to return to your book, which I think we're probably gonna do a lot throughout this conversation, you, you have a vignette uh, and it's, of, of all places, a casino in Las Vegas where there was this enterprising individual who's, who thought, oh my gosh, instead of having to be physically present at the casino to monitor the water temperature of our in-house aquariums, I can install some new fancy remotely controlled temperature checks. And I can just do all of this stuff from anywhere from any computer I could log into, I don't have to physically be at the casino anymore. And through some hackery that was made possible through the advent of some of this technology that's dependent on 5g with different programs and systems communicating with each other, the internet of things, you talk about how an external actor was able to enter and not just do something trivial, like mess with water temperatures and like fry some fish in a pond, they were able not only to access those temperature devices, but to get into the core network of the casino. Now, perhaps a lot of us, I don't know how many people have sympathy for a casino getting hacked, but what about critical infrastructure? So I want to ask you, what would a bad Worst case scenario of potential exposure look like, say, for a power company? Like, if a power company brought in some of this technology and they were compromised, what could happen?
1: Sure. You know, in, in fact, in Wireless Wars, I talk about the freeze out in Texas last winter, where the whole state, the grid. My came parents down. were in
0: the middle of all of that, and my, my sister as well. Yeah.
1: It was, it was an awful situation that was almost a lot worse. So uh, you you can debate about the policies and the regulations and so on. There's a lot of various arguments you you can make there, but here's what happened. The power supply was coming offline because of the extreme cold power demand. Turbines were freezing. Gas lines were freezing. Power demand was going up. People in Texas tend to have electrical heat because you don't generally need a lot of heat. And that's kind of a, a convenient way to go. The grid was teetering and They were relying on readings about power loads, power demand, heat, all kinds of telemetry that the network had deployed, so that they could monitor and manage the network, and they started to take it down and go to rolling blackouts. If they had gotten bad data, not just failed to get data where suddenly you got to scramble trucks and you go out to sites and it cost you thousands of dollars, but if they got bad data. This temperature is 74 degrees when it was 130 degrees. They would have made different decisions. And they were seconds, they say, from losing the entire network. And Texas would have been out for weeks. It could have caused hundreds of billions, if not more, in damage and death. And 5G was not a factor here. There is no 5G deployed, but there's going to be. And if you say, who designed the system? Well, you don't want the answer to be a company that the Chinese Communist Party controls because you may be on the phone to your vendor saying, okay, guys, we're, we're in a crisis mode here. How do we handle this? We need to reset that. Not only might they not help you, but talk about an awful lot of power to say, we're going we're gonna to just shut down communications on that unless you uh, come to the table. You know, there's, there's a novel out, 2034, that talks about China flexing that kind of muscle, shutting down computers in the US. I I hope that 2034 is not, you know, way out in the future from something that could happen today. But I I really do think a bad intentioned owner of that kind of a a network could do enormous harm to the United States.
0: Let's bring this home and in so doing return to the FBI investigation of, of why Huawei was deploying so much of their equipment close to military facilities, so what? If you have maybe a a base station that is, I don't know, within a mile or in close proximity to a military base that, that conducts highly classified research, physically, Huawei equipment is outside of the perimeter of the base, but you describe it, I think, in pretty good detail of why even close proximity of Huawei hardware and software to U.S. installations could cause pretty severe issues. And you mentioned nuclear sites as well. Could you walk us through how Huawei could mess with U.S. military operations in some scenarios like that?
1: Sure. And and it was kind of a funny story the way I got this report. My source, who was a Kenner intelligence officer with the FBI who had stood up this Huawei team to uh, track how a country could use private businesses to advance its cause. He called me up and he said, can you get to McLean, Virginia at noon? Meet me at a coffee shop. I said, sure. And anyone who knows McLean, Virginia, what's located there, I'll give you a hint that the high school in McLean is called Langley High School. So I get in my car and I'm driving around the parking lot outside this coffee shop and I find a spot and I pull in. I put the car in park and my door opens and he climbs in and sits down. He hands me a manila folder and says, I got to get back to work. And he gets out of the car and leaves. I text him a message saying that was the worst dead drop ever. And he corrected me. He said, I got to tell you, first of all, it's a live drop because we're both here. Your spycraft is terrible, John. And he said, I would not have met you in McLean, certainly not at this coffee shop, which if, if the Chinese aren't bugging it, they're, they should be fired. He said, look at the folder I gave you. That's open source from the Federal Communications Commission. And what it showed was where Huawei had put in its cell towers and and ZTE. And here's the amazing thing. The carriers were not buying Huawei to put into their cell towers, the antennas, the radios, all the stuff that you see at the bottom of one of those big towers. That's what connects your call to the network. AT&T wouldn't buy them. Sprint wouldn't buy them. All they could do was sell to small, rural, family-owned companies. Now one FCC executive told me, "Oh, they're putting it in rural areas because they know that Montana has as many senators as California and if we ever try to pull it out, those senators are going to be screaming bloody murder." And in fact that's exactly what happened when the conversations turned to pulling it pulling it out. People said, "My citizens won't have a lifeline," which is true. What the FBI officer, the section chief explained to me though was the nuclear missile bases in America Seem to almost all have Huawei gear that was pretty much given away to these family owned businesses. And he met with the companies and he said, Do you realize what you're doing? And they're like, It's not illegal. The government should tell us if we can't deploy it, please say so because I got no budget. I don't have expertise on staff. They came and they did it all for me. Now you can argue what can you really learn running the cell site? Even if you cannot send, if you cannot intercept calls, if they're encrypted, if they're digital there's something called metadata. Metadata says, even if you don't know what was communicated on a phone call or an internet session, it says, who was on? Who were they talking to? How long were they talking? So if you say, wait a minute, the same person has visited five nuclear missile bases in a week and a half. He's jumping like crazy around the country. And he keeps talking to this phone number that we didn't even know was of any importance. Something's going on. And you can start putting things together. This is good spycraft here. This is where you say, we don't know what they said, but we might as well know because we can tell what's happening now. And Huawei had remarkable presence at all these locations. They're just now in the process of being ripped out and replaced.
0: We've been dancing around Huawei for a few minutes now. And I, I think that up until now, this has been really helpful to set the table to have a framework to make sense of why Huawei is doing what it's doing, but let, let's talk about the main character here for a few minutes. What is Huawei? Where did they come from? And how do they acquire global market dominance so quickly?
1: Yeah, th- this is a company that was founded in the late 80s, Run fei I don't believe the, the story is that he was a senior army officer. He was, he was not, because he went from that job uh, as a as an engineer in the army to a couple jobs that didn't work out too well for him through the early 90s he started importing fire alarms from hong kong and selling them in rural china this was not a, a, a path some you know long con by china to create this company he really was an ambitious and is an ambitious smart leader and manager uh, i did learn that it was a, a mitel pbx that he was started importing from hong kong the first telecom gear and then he decided he was tired of importing theirs. So he started just ripping off the Mitel switch and selling it himself. People at Mitel said, we just started selling him the, the chip set, the microchips. So at least we could get some of the money from, uh, from this IP theft. But the amazing thing is between the late 90s and, and about 10 years later, by 2010 or so, this company was pushing $100 billion a year in revenue, and this is not a hyperscaler. These are guys are bending metal. They're putting circuits together. They're, they need sales forces. They have to install gear. Nobody grows that fast. I mean, even you look at Amazon and, and, and Google where you don't have to be building all the products yourself. You can just scale very easily. This is a hard business to scale. When they hit tough times, they were getting lending from the banks. Banks were giving them 50% of all their loans for the year would go to Huawei. That's not what a bank does. There's something called diversifying. Banks know better unless they're told. I tell a story about one of the guys who's an American was trying to pull Huawei in on their first international project ever. They had never sold outside of China. And it was a deal for Saudi Arabia. And the Saudi prince had asked, bring Huawei in. We want to sell them oil, so we'll try to buy some other stuff. And he met with this woman. And she said she didn't speak English. She was the chairwoman, uh, Madam Sun. Her story was that she had worked at a television company, a radio manufacturer, and now is at Huawei. That was her cover story. There's a CIA database that ties you back into old information. I was able to find her old alumni class letter that raved about how their top student had gone off to the ministry of state security and wowed them there. And then had been placed effectively into Huawei, where she was bringing government money in to keep them afloat during tough times. This this let you know who he was dealing with. And he did say that she didn't speak English when they met, but by the end of the week, she was almost fluent. It turns out she was, of course, fluent in English. And I just won an essay contest in English, in, in fact. But you've got a, a company that came out of nowhere, was backed with $75 billion of government money. And people say, well, the American government, French government, they all backed their champions. That's true. Cisco received about 45 million with an M over the same time period. And that was a lot of money. That's the closest thing we had to a company like Huawei by then because all the American companies had gone, gone bust. Lucent, Nortel, Motorola were, were out of business.
0: Huawei will often respond to facts like the ones you just laid out. And they will trot out one of their common defenses, which is we are not a state-owned or a state-controlled company. They, they market and posture as a private company. What do you make of that?
1: Yeah, so they're kind of private in that they're not a government-created entity that just does it, what the government tells them. There was a company that fit that description in the telecom space, making phone switches and radios. They were called Great Dragon. Uh, no one's ever heard of them. They went out of business because they made awful products and they didn't care. And they you know, basically took whatever the government compelled in-country companies to buy. Huawei was an ambitious company trying to grow rapidly, smart managers, ruthless really, uh, bloodthirsty is the term that their chairman uses to describe his corporate culture, hunting in packs, immune to cold. This is what the Huawei culture is in his words.
0: But And uh, and actually on that note, I don't mean to cut you off, John, but you, you just reminded me of something, an anecdote that you share in the book where There are these gun safes, at least at one time, there are these gun safes next to the desks of Huawei employees. And the question is, what what in the world is inside of these gun safes next to every single desk? And the answer, as you reveal, is at the end of the day, the employees will put all of their loose paper, their research, everything they did that day, and literally lock them in a secure airtight safe, so no one can steal their work from them. Like, this is a highly competitive work culture, to say the least.
1: Exactly. They, they were a little worried about ZTE up the road, but they're even more worried about the guy down the hall who was going to steal the research and present it as his own. That's at least the culture that was described to me there. And, and you talk just on, on the question of, of ownership, uh, technically, it's employee-owned. Okay, what does that mean? Is it employee-controlled? Well... Uh, a couple of researchers did a deep dive into the legalities of the ownership. And here's what they found. The the employees kind of have tracking stock. If the company does better, they can make more money. The company does worse. They don't make as much. When they leave the company, they have to return that tracking stock. They don't get to take it with them. The the five founders of Huawei who put up $5,000 for a company worth hundreds of billions today, they didn't make any money as far as anyone can tell. And they were the founders. Those are the people that are buying sports teams in the US. You, know, you, you buy the Portland Trailblazers if you're one of the guys on board at the start. There was none of that there. But here's what I found most interesting. How are the, the owner employees able to exert their influence over the direction of the company? Well, they do it through the union representative. He's the one that like, casts the vote. Okay, who does that union answer to? The union members, right? No, that's, that's in most of the world. In China, the union answers to the more senior union. Okay, they answer up, not down. Okay, well, who does the more senior union answer to? To cut it short, it's the CCP has control over the ultimate union. So the Chinese Communist Party votes on what happens at Huawei. They don't meddle in every decision or the company wouldn't have thrived. But they control and restrict. And under the 2017 intelligence laws, they have full access to anything that that company is doing. They are required even as a, quote, private company, to turn everything over on demand to the Chinese Communist Party. In fact, I, I spoke to a, a consultant who said when he was working for Huawei, he'd pitch to the business executive on what should be done. And they'd say, oh, this is great. Now go down the hall and, and finish off. And they'd go down and there'd be a, a guy in a room filled with pictures of Mao and, and communist theory books. And he would have to pitch to the Communist Party member. And the guy who didn't know what he was talking about would say, okay, that's, that's great. Go ahead and do it.
0: Which I think begs the question, what is it that the Chinese Communist Party is after with its support of Huawei? Because I think you're right to differentiate national champions here in the United States or other countries versus national champions in China, orders of magnitude of difference. But I think you're alluding to something here. It's more than just the size of support, the volume of support that a company like Huawei gets from the CCP, there's there's also the fact that, that there's something Huawei is doing that is politically valuable to Beijing and to the authorities in China. And we, we've talked about a few discrete examples of what the Chinese Communist Party could do to disrupt life in America in very specific ways, whether that's nuclear sites, military sites, power stations or something like that. But maybe we could get a little bit bigger picture here. What is it that the Chinese Communist Party is trying to achieve through their support of Huawei?
1: Sure. And, and you know, there's, there's the exchange that I, I reference in, in Wireless Wars where the founder, Run Ren Fei says to the vice premier of China, a country without its own telecom switch is like a country without its own military. And he says, very true, very true. It tells you how they see it. China refused to put in any of the really good high end switches in any, from, from the West in any of their secure networks. The chairman of the Dutch phone company said that he was required to deploy Philips phone switches, and they were barely even a player in any of the embassies around the world because they didn't even trust the Americans to, uh, to be handling their telecom. But the, the real power you get is in, in a couple places. You have the specific direct benefits of being able to observe or uh, eavesdrop or throttle or terminate communications, which is critical. And then you've got the broader commerce and trade benefits. So I'll start with with that one first. When Huawei started to become an issue a couple of years ago about the security, it's been an issue for many years when people started to do something about it. You had Germany say, okay, we're not going to allow Huawei in our network. And the message came down to Germany. If you don't allow it in your network, you may not be able to sell any Volkswagens in China. Now, Germany sells more Volkswagens in China than the rest of the world combined, including Germany. You start to see the influence. In fact, Huawei, when Sweden was going to pull Huawei out of the network, the chairman of Ericsson, a Swedish company, one of the biggest flagship companies in the country, he said to his own ministers, do not bar Huawei. If you block them from being able to sell into Sweden, they won't let me sell into China. And that's where my market is. I will pull the company out of Sweden if you do that. Now, he did not pull the company out of Sweden. But you start to see the influence that the presence of this company has. If you look more specifically, though, what you can do with the network, it's not just you know, people say, I don't care who wants to listen in on me. No one's going to listen on my phone call. If they do, God, they're, they're going to be bored. Well, China offered to build the African Union headquarters in Addis Ababa, $250 million gift to the people of Africa. Very kind of them. It was a, a, a win-win situation,
0: as it was described by the Chinese. V- very kind and generous of them, indeed.
1: <laughs> very kind. I, I, I corrected that. It's not they were half right when they said it was win-win. Uh, so they built this $250 million beautiful center for military, political, and business activities of the continent of Africa. They also equipped the call center, the data center, with Huawei equipment and conference rooms and video conferencing. It took about five years for someone to discover that the servers were turning on around 2 a.m. There's a huge power drain is, I think, what they first discovered. And they were sending all the information back to Shenzhen Huawei didn't admit they did it. And the African union didn't admit they, they did it, but they ripped out all the gear and they replaced it with non Chinese equipment. So, so all the information, all the planning, the Chinese became party to that, to that information. A few years later, it was time to build the, um, centers for disease control in China. And, uh, China won the contract for that building too. And about a week later, they discovered that the surveillance cameras in the original building all along had still been tied back into China. So there was video and audio being sent just through another means. And think how compromised a country can be with this. And and you think it can't happen here, but uh, across Europe, London, you've seen damage done by Huawei having a presence in the network.
0: What strikes me listening to you is not just the fact that the Chinese Communist Party is pursuing this level of penetration, but for how long they've been seeking to acquire this capability. I, I, I felt like in every chapter of your book, there was at least one anecdote that I read. I thought, oh my goodness, my eyes are saucers right now, but I'll tell you one of them. Uh, it's uh, earlier on, and you talk about uh, some of the early contracts that American companies, I think in this case, might have even be, been AT&T, when they started selling uh, rudimentary equipment to Chinese companies that were trying to get domestic telecom networks up and running. And they noticed all of a sudden that purchases from China just cut off almost overnight in, in kind of an inexplicable way and they're trying to figure out what, what's the reason for this. We we were not expecting these purchase orders to dry up so soon. And they found out when they did an inventory that they had a shortage of the components of the capability that allowed Chinese telecom providers to tap the phone lines that they were uh, that they were installing. I think you put it so well in your book where you said they were backlogged on, monitor, on monitoring gear and they discovered that they would not deploy a single element if it didn't have the capacity to tap it, if, it, if they didn't have the capacity to listen in. Like this, this is not something that's new. Uh, even domestically to China, they've been pursuing that capability for so long. I'll give you a, a chance to respond to that. but I, I also want to scope this to looking abroad because it's not just... China, and it's not just a country like us, the United States. You do a good job of pointing out how this is a global enterprise, where uh, through the Belt and Road Initiative, this is one of the big digital elements that they are exporting. It's not just so the Chinese Communist Party can have penetration; There are arming foreign governments with this technology as well. So, I'd love to hear you talk to that dynamic of how it's more than just the Chinese Communist Party getting this capability. They're shipping the same ability to other governments too. What, what does that mean for 21st century life?
1: Yeah, the, the way I put that is it's not always what China, what, what Huawei is doing to its customers. It's often what it's doing for its customers. So maybe they're hacking, maybe they're spying, they're sending data out. But what you've seen around the world, and, and their biggest foothold outside of their home country is in Africa and Latin America, certain parts of Asia. There are despots in some of these countries that just aren't that good at crushing the will of the people. They just they can roll the tanks, they can shoot people, they can have them beaten, and they and they do all that. And I'm sure their their expertise is, is decent in that space. But when it comes to using technology to keep the people down, China's really been a huge help in. In their export of surveillance and suppression. They're great at doing it in country as we know, and it's terrifying. Uh, the facial recognition technology, people need to register their new smartphones now with a face unlock. So China wants to have on file every phone and the user, and they know who you are. you think about George Orwell, 1984, you know, the, the parks had hidden microphones or whatever. Everyone's carrying a microphone, a video camera, and a GPS indicator in their pocket 24-7. In fact, I've been told you can get stopped on the street in China, and they'll say, where's your phone? And you damn well better have one. Because if you don't have a phone on you, they're thinking, wait, wait a minute, what is this person up to? Why in the world would you be out here without a phone? And besides, we can't track you or follow what's going on now. So you look at countries, uh, Uganda has a president for life, and he had an upstart Pop singer Bobby Wine, who decided to run against him for president, and what he was able to do is use Huawei to hack into his WhatsApp and crack the encryption and start intercepting rallies before they could happen. They would have people pulled over and beaten. The president of Uganda couldn't have done that on his own, and they were at the time very proud, both sides boasting about it. And then they, they of course, both got quiet. But um, several countries around the world, what they're finding is that. China is enabling through the export of its technology, the export of its ideology, and people can complain. And I think rightly, in a lot of ways, you know, the British Empire or U.S. involvement in other parts of the world, trying to impose your way of life on people that that uh, didn't ask for you to do it. Those are all valid arguments. I think it becomes particularly important if the the philosophy of life is to shut up and do as. The government tells you, or at least as the government allows you, and dissidents will be shipped off to internment camps to force labor and, you know, some reports from human rights organizations, organ harvesting. This is the cultural values that are held by the CCP. The, the Chinese people are already suffering under this, and China is unfortunately finding ways to export this as part of their philosophy. It's not so much business there. It's the, I use that term geopolitical, it's exporting of their
0: national philosophy of the Chinese Communist Party. I do think you're onto something here when you talk about the party's export of surveillance. And I think honestly, John, this is one of the trickiest parts of this whole thing Because China is co-opting a free market system that is built on incentives, that uh, these companies respond to market incentives, and the market incentives are pointing them in the exact opposite direction of what's in our national interest, at least what I would certainly contend. You address that directly, and, and, and that's what I want to ask you about now, because I feel like there's a lot, not just with Huawei, but even if you look at the Olympics, if you look at The human rights atrocities in Xinjiang, whether it's genocide or you mentioned slave labor, and in some cases, even organ harvesting, there's a lot of moral shaming that's happening of multilateral companies, many of them American, who absolutely should know better. But I'm skeptical that moral shaming will actually accomplish a lot of change if if the market incentives bring them in a different direction. What do you make of all of that tension that's going on in our China discourse right now.
1: Well, well, here's one of the problems. And I interviewed the, he was the CFO of Lucent and, and now is the CFO of Pfizer. And he put it so well. He said um, that these companies are looking out for their own corporate interests, not for the national interest. That's the conundrum we have here because they are not in a situation where they can be driven by the national interest. You know, they have to follow the law. And they, you know, generally people, you know, they love, you love your country, or at least you like your country and, and you want to do what's right. But when push comes to shove, this is a very tough choice. In fact, the the way I I set it up early in the book, you know, i point out that there were plenty of boneheads running telecom equipment makers in the West in the, you know, the year 2000 or so made some bad decisions. I talk about the golf course that the CEO of Lucent was putting up. Uh, It's a Greenfield project. Uh, It was a a $50 million private golf course that the company was building. He he was was fired. But the point that I raise is that locating in China and turning over your IP, sharing your IP, seems stupid. Seems like it's a death wish. But if, say, Lucent had not moved manufacturing and R&D into China, said, no, we're going to keep it in America where it's secure and they kept selling their products in America and around the world. But Alcatel or Ericsson or Siemens or Nokia, if anyone did move to China, and these were sh- tough competitors already for Lucent, they'd be out there saying, okay, not only can we make a product that's as good as Bell Labs and Lucent Technologies, but we're, making it, we're selling it at a third of the price. Oh, and Lucent would have been out of business and that would have been the end of the game. So they did not have the option. now. The the only alternative would be if they said if the government banned them from putting anything in, in China, but then would have had to say to Finland and Sweden and France, we're going to collude. As an industry, we're going to collude with each other to prevent R&D from being done by those companies in China. Now, I don't know if that's, if that's legal, but it wouldn't have happened because as soon as one company got close to failing, if Alcatel, France's national champion, said, we just can't cut it. Say, well, why don't you just do some low-end stuff in China? Make some of these things. You'll cut your costs. Now you'll be competitive again. Great. If Nokia said, you know, we're just not able to compete, well, why don't you do your R&D there? they got so many brilliant engineers, and they do. It would have been a race to the bottom anyway. And so it was inevitable that this had to happen. The problem is there was no plan B. They never said, okay, we're going to lose a lot of this IP. How do we make ourselves so that we can rebound and still beat China in the global market
0: later? If if that is the situation you're uh, we are in, and I think you're right, what have we done up until now to try to hit Huawei's competitiveness? Have we been able to stem the tide with what Huawei has actually been able to accomplish?
1: Yeah, it, it's extraordinary. Uh, when I started writing the book, uh, it looked like it was not it it was hopeless. Uh, this was in early 2020, and. And then something funny happened. You had this virus sweep in out of Wuhan and people started saying, geez, this is a, I don't think they've been forthright about the spread of this illness through their own country. And now they're not sending us the masks that they're contracted on. And in a lot of the world, this isn't widely known, but they were withholding health equipment, contracted deliveries in return for certain political agreements. And I spoke to people at telecom companies that said, we ended up buying Huawei and ZTE gear. The guy brought a case of N95 masks or KN95 masks for us.
0: I've heard heard of the CCP attaching uh, Taiwan diplomatic concessions to PPE, but I have not heard of Huawei and ZTE gear being attached to PPE.
1: I I had one guy say, I would never take a bribe and I'm always offered in this job, all sorts of inducements, but in the height of the COVID crisis, he offered me a case of N95 respirators, KN95 respirators, and he said, I took them. Now what he did in return, I, I don't know, but he took them. Wow. Uh, now people were afraid they were gonna die, and people were dying, uh, but so when that happened, people said, can we count on the supply chain for other vital things, pharmaceuticals, for, for telecom gear? And so things started shifting there. And Europe, which was saying, no, no, we're all in for Huawei. It's better. It's cheaper, which it is, or at least it was. Uh, the, and, and this is an amazing thing. I, I'm working with people both in the current administration, the Biden administration, and people from the prior administration, Trump administration, they're all on board with this. They're in agreement. They're working with each other. I've never seen that. Uh, you know, my rule was always when I'm talking to someone from this administration, don't mention the T word, because, you know, you, you could, you don't want to set something off. And, and they say, you know, we got this great work we did with the, my predecessor, and you had things like um, the Clean Network Initiative, where the uh, Secretary of State and the Secretary of State for Economic Growth put together a program to get about 60 countries to agree, we're not putting in Huawei. And some of them came right out and said it as policy, some of them for fear of retribution said, we're just going to make sure whatever we put in is secure. And they effectively uh, blacklisted Huawei. The, the real nuclear option that was played, that pushed it was when uh, the Trump administration said, all right, we're not going to sell chips to Huawei. And they said, all right, well, we'll get them elsewhere. And they said, all right, we're not going to sell the equipment used to make chips to any of the companies in the world that make chips. And suddenly that brought things to a grinding halt because America is not the world leader in fabrication of high-end chips. That's Taiwan, it's Korea, but there's pieces of that value chain that we own, uh, especially in the equipment, hardware and software side. And what we did is we just said, um, if you sell it to Huawei, you're not getting any more gear and they stopped. And Huawei got hit, never saw it coming no one expected this to happen. I was still midway through the manuscript and I was able to pivot from Europe's on board with Huawei to, you know, the legs got cut out. So that was a, a remarkable change. There was that great line I quote from a, a leader in Europe who did not want me to use his name, where he said, we all hate Trump, but secretly we love what he's doing about China.
0: I and was I fascinating.
1: That so many people have shared that, that view that it was a, uh, It was the right thing for whatever reason. If it was done for trade imbalances, then it was done for the wrong reason. I don't care. It was the right thing.
0: This is the point of the conversation where I I foist the million dollar question on you, which I I know you write about near the end of your book, but I want to spend some time uh, unpacking. It's one thing to cut Huawei's legs out from under it. It's another thing for U.S. companies to actually get a, to regain a competitive advantage. What is the course ahead? Does the United States have an option to regain a competitive footing in, when it comes to 5G, when it comes to next generation of telecommunications with the Internet of Things? Uh, are we too late to the party? Where, where are we in that landscape right now?
1: Yeah. So this is where you get to that issue of what 5G is really about and set aside people getting you know faster downloads of 30 rock or whatever it is you're trying to do. Uh, 5G is going to enable factories to be materially more productive. It's really is like a fourth industrial revolution. And I am not someone who drinks the Kool-Aid on the wireless industry hype, but the internet of things, port efficiency, farm operations. You can have drones that can, instead of flying, instead of crop dusting and dropping a ton of insecticide, you can have a drone spray an ounce of insecticide on on the bugs. You know, have a, a camera that's looking for something that fits the description, spritz it, check with the artificial intelligence database and then move on. If you have these systems, 5G systems, you're a competitive economy. And if you don't, if you say we've blocked Huawei, we've blocked ZTE, we'll just go with second best it's going to cost a lot more. It'll come from Ericsson and Nokia. They make great gear. They really do. It costs a lot more. And it's still probably not as good as what's coming out of Huawei for 5G. It really isn't. You can't go with second best. It's not a good solution because then anyone who does go with the advanced state-of-the-art 5G is going to have a better pharmaceutical manufacturer, machine equipment. So what's the alternative? One idea that certainly appealed greatly was this idea of opening up the closed interfaces between parts of a telecom network and without getting into the technology too much, uh, I'll just put it, describe it this way. You have the antennas at the top of a cell tower. You've got the radio and you've got some kind of control unit that sends it onto the telephone network. That comes as a kit. If you buy it from Nokia, the antennas from Nokia, the radios from Nokia, the, the base unit is from Nokia. the the interconnects, the interfaces are secret, proprietary, and unique. And it's like if you have a car and you crack your windshield in your Mercedes and you say, "Ah, Mercedes windshields are so expensive, I think I'll put in a Chevy windshield. The the dealership will say, no, you won't. You can do it with tires. That's why tires are cheap. Tires are 80 bucks. Your windshield is going to cost you a thousand. Now, it doesn't have to cost a thousand. If anyone could make a windshield for any car, They would cost a couple hundred dollars. Your stereo in your car, anyone can put any stereo in any car. The interfaces are open and public with a car stereo. You can buy it for 90 bucks. You can buy one for $900. Try to put a transmission in your BMW from a a cheap manufacturer. There's this very appealing, relatively new model called open radio access networks, which just says when you break open those interfaces, suddenly instead of using a Nokia radio, You can get it from some company in New Hampshire that found a better way to build the radio. Instead of the base unit being from Ericsson, you can say, I'm gonna use a Dell server. I'm just gonna put a server off the shelf. And I got some guy at Caltech, a junior there, who says he can write a really good application for handing off mobile phone calls. I'm gonna try that software. You cannot put any software on a system today that didn't come from that manufacturer. So you got the choice between 10,000 really smart Nokia engineers and scientists Or 10 million people all over the world that are saying, try this. If it doesn't work, just pull it out and go back. Because right now, it's all built on kind of the the fail-safe model. These guys will try to make it bulletproof. And if it doesn't work, you're going to have a problem. So we're going to really build that wall thick and high. And and you switch to a safe fail model saying, looks more like the internet now. Anyone can be putting a a node on it. You can try it. If it works, it's great. If it doesn't work, get rid of it, put something else in that model, this open RAN model, which, which may not be the, the end solution here, but sure looks appealing, shifts the competence for success from scale and in, installed base, which is China and Huawei, and shifts it instead to areas that are really strong outside of China. So it becomes cloud-based. It becomes who makes better silicon, which is US and, and, and Korea and Taiwan. Who, makes, who writes better software? That's India and the U.S. and, and Ukraine, you know, Israel. Who, who has a better, um, who has more creative applications? Who's better at integrating complex systems? No one hires Chinese integrators to put together their IT system. They hire Capgemini and Accenture and Deloitte. These are the leaders and none of
0: these are Chinese companies. This is the final note, John, that I want to end on with you. Before you mention Oran near the end of your book, you talk about a principle that I think has a lot of potential for policymakers who are weighing how to respond to companies like Huawei. You talk about something called permissionless innovation, and you present this concept as an opportunity for the United States to respond to a company like Huawei not by trying to replicate China's game and try to build our own national champion, but to play to our own strengths that are unique to us. Talk If you could talk a, lo- a little bit about what you mean by permissionless innovation.
1: Yeah, Michael, this may be the single most important concept here. China is innovative. Anyone who says that they can't innovate, you know, I found an article From Harvard Business School that said, why China can't innovate? And I called up to talk to the professors. And his colleague said, Don't ask him about it. He doesn't believe that either anymore. No one does. But America's superpower is this sort of permissionless innovation. I didn't coin the phrase. It's a a group at, at George Mason, Mercatus Center. Here's what the idea is. These are companies that come up, not because they were funded and sponsored by the government. In fact, they were they were threatened and thwarted by the government, companies that said, I'm gonna have people get picked up in cars by strangers. You're gonna get into a stranger's car and they're gonna take you where where you asked. The government said, you don't have a taxi medallion. You don't have a limo license. You're not insured for this. No, and they faced the government, Uber, Lyft faced the government in court and they won. Not every time, but they won. They say, we're gonna have people stay in your home that you don't know. Strangers will show up and stay in your house. And the government said, no, that's, uh, you're not zoned as a hotel. You didn't meet the health and cleanliness rules and so on. And Airbnb, VRBO faced the government in court and they went. They, no one gave them permission. They just did it. How valuable is that? Literally trillions of dollars in value in the last 10 or 20 years has been created, not only in the US, but mostly in the US and in Europe. And, and the thing is, I talked, uh, about American exceptionalism, but my concept of American exceptionalism, all my examples were people that were not born in the US, but they were here because they were saying, I like the entrepreneur environment better here than in France. I have more opportunity here than I had in Nigeria and, and people come to America so that they can be exceptional. The, the consequences for breaking the social norms of getting into a car with a stranger or, or the legal norms about licensing, No one's worried that they're going to be uh, sent to the gulag. Jack Ma gave a speech following a vice minister in China. The vice minister called for more regulation on finance. And Jack Ma said, we don't need more regulation. We need less. Now, this is the richest, most beloved entrepreneur in China, one of the world's great innovators. He said, we can't regulate airlines the way we used to regulate railroads. And what he meant is you can't regulate fintech financial technology companies way he regulated old banks. Jack Ma disappeared. They took him off. They shut down his IPO. They closed his beloved business school he had founded for entrepreneurs. And that tells you, if they would do that to him, entrepreneurs in China know you can be creative, but stay in the lane. Don't put your head up too high. I found an example of one CEO of a financial company, a major company in China. He was arrested, charged with illegal fundraising. Uh, January 7th, I think last year, he was brought to trial, one day trial, convicted on all counts. Uh, on the 20th or so, they executed him. Okay, so when Tim Cook comes up with a clever idea, he's not thinking, I hope they don't kill me for this one. He's saying, I hope the market is kind. I hope the board doesn't throw me out. But the big companies can innovate and the little guys can innovate, and this permissionless form of innovation is really America's superpower that can unleash, you know, maybe you don't have 200,000 engineers, but you have, you know, 100 million really clever people that are
0: ready to participate and and just break the rules. So this does lead me to what I promised this time will actually be my final question to you. For the people listening to this podcast, who are not in the business realm, but maybe they work on Capitol Hill. Maybe they're an official in in one of the agencies in the executive branch. Uh, Permissionless innovation is such a bottom-up concept that I think you're right to to connect it to the idea of American exceptionalism because it is the essence of so much of our economic growth and it reflects our national character none of that starts in Washington. None of that starts from Washington. It's quite the opposite. So I think you're onto something with uh, permissionless innovation. What does that mean though for the staffer on the Hill who's interested in these issues for folks in government? What is their role in all of that?
1: Well, so, so here you can get really bipartisan. So I originally was saying, so the government needs to just get out of the way. And I started building the model. I'm like, well, that's just stupid. It's just not the case government has a role here. On the one hand, you have to stop constraining the innovators from what they can do. So the way Spectrum is granted, you want to be as free as you can while still maintaining order in the system. But the role of government on an active level is to go in there and break apart these proprietary models that keep out the innovation. The government actually has to get involved there. In, at least in this space, you cannot say I've come up with a better radio. Why won't you buy it? Because the answer is I won't buy it because there's only two other companies now that are making it. Uh, Nokia and Ericsson. These are really good companies. I can count on them, and I cannot take the risk that I walk away from them and and learn that they were the only ones that could deliver. But if they opened up the interfaces and 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 incumbents aren't gonna do this eagerly, but the writing is on the wall. They all know that if if they don't do it, someone will. And even Huawei is is ready to to come out with open radio network designs. The government has to come in and say, we're gonna make it so that anyone can step into the market with hardware, with software, with services and participate. And that requires intervention. And, And it may require government to write some checks saying, You gotta get over the hump here. We're gonna sponsor security initiatives that you guys don't have the money to pay for yourselves, but are universally usable. We're not gonna pick winners. You don't want the government to say, this is the product, this is the vendor. But if the national labs, Idaho National Lab does more on wireless security than just about any individual company. So invest in that and make it available. Let the American companies say, I'm gonna cut 50 million out of my R and D budget Because the government spent $500 to just crush this problem, and we can all tap into it now. So you need spending. You need assistance. You don't want to pick winners. You need to let companies fail that aren't delivering. But I think there's a role for government in this to make it happen.
0: John, I'm really thankful, not only that you joined the podcast to talk about all these incredibly important issues, I'm really thankful that you wrote the book that you wrote. I think it tells this story in such a compelling, interesting way, and, and truly, I, I do believe that anyone, even if, you, if you're not a techie, you can pick up the book and instantly not only learn a lot from it, but you, you do get sucked in. I, I, I feel like I did, so I highly encourage folks who are interested in everything we're talking about to check out John's book, Wireless War's And I'm grateful for the chance that we've had to talk about this. So again, John, thank you so much for talking today.
1: Michael, it was a real pleasure. I really liked speaking with you on this.
0: Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe and leave a rating or review. To learn more about AFPC's research, visit us online at afpc.org. For questions or comments, you can reach me, at greatpowerpod at afpc.org. I'm Michael Sobolik, and you've been listening to Great Power Podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time.